and I mentioned the word food fight, and I've been mentioning this to other people because at the UN, there, you know, the idea, the, the whole concept of space resources was going to be, you know, really brought to the forefront and talked about. Now, back in February, the Hague Working Group presented the building blocks to the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, COPUS. Looking at it as a critical lawyer, as an adversarial lawyer, as a litigation attorney, I had some real issues with it. But what I saw with this, with this uh, executive order is saying, you know what, instead of, instead of fighting this out in the UN completely, we're going to kind of do an end run around and go directly with, to other states and discuss this idea of space resources and promote our idea of space resources and get them to actually work with us. And that's what I really liked about the EEO is that it kind of couched it the whole right of space resources as U.S. citizens should have the right, not boom, we have the right, you know, and the heck with what, what you think. The idea is we should have the right. And that kind of opens the door for other states to come in and talk one-on-one with the U.S. and potentially create standards of behavior, come to agreement about how these things are trickled down economically and such. So, I mean, it's just, it was an immensely bold executive order. And I think it really changes the whole dynamic of the idea of space resources. This is Jason Cadigan, the host of the Cold Star Project. I am here with Michael Listener. He is the founder and principal at Space Law and Policy Solutions. So I think you know what we will be discussing. He's also the author and editor of The Pressy, which is his sort of space law newsletter. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So, Michael, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I, when we got this invitation a few months ago, I didn't expect us to be in this uh, situation, if you want to call it. But uh, here we are. We, here we are. Yeah, Thanks yeah. to miracle of technology. <laughs> well, uh, I am happy to have you on. Uh, I've, I've talked with a number of space lawyers, so hopefully we'll be able to have a sophisticated space law conversation here. Um, but I used to see your name, and I still do, all over LinkedIn and go, who is that guy, right? So here we are. Uh, so so let's, let's begin with this kicker question then. Um, you know, every space lawyer has their own little points of contention and difference in interpretation um, between how they're looking at space law and what they believe is important. Uh, so for you, where, where do you find yourself in disagreement the most, conceptually or maybe with the letter of the law? with interpretation of issues with other space lawyers? Well, conceptually, I look at, I don't look at the world from a globe, from a global, global world order point of view. I don't, mm. that, well, there, there, there are kind of two versions of what we consider international law, what we call uh, making international law top down, which is kind of like treaties and international mm. bodies and bottom up where states, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about states during our conversation. And what I mean is nations mm. basically create policy and law at their level and they try to filter it on the way up and create and, and get it accepted into into law that way have come international law that way i i believe that the, the world is inherently geopolitical that is you know we talk about cooperation among nations and cooperation in space uh nations states have interest and yes states cooperate but states cooperate to the extent that it furthers their interests so i don't I'm not really affirm believer if, if that's the proper word that you know space outer you know outer space activities and space law is about you know this whole you know we are one world versus we we're we're indiv- versus we're individual states with individual interests and we promote our interest interests in international fora and our interpretation of international law and international space law to suit our, our policy needs and our state interests 
Okay, so, so you're looking at it from a realpolitik uh, point of view. Exactly, and that's and that's the word right there. I mean, huh. you know, there 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 is real politik, and bottom line is, you know, this the whole idea of geopolitics and realpolitik has been going on for mm-hmm. hundreds of years in yep. in Western in Western civilization, and thousands of years in Eastern civilization. Right. Yep. It's it's not new, and it is a reality. I mean. Uh, <laughs> Go tell Bismarck about cooperation. You know? Yeah, well. <laughs> so, well, I guess that leads into the next question then. You, you've got this point of view then. Um, how do clients approach you and what are they seeking when they come to you then, Michael? Well, some, it, sometimes I, I get a lot of inquiries about, you know, hey, this is my latest startup project. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And, I'll, you know, a lot of them I do filter through because it's like, you know, this is somebody who, because yeah, I'll look at their, you know, I'll look at their idea quickly and say, I don't know if this is something, you know, this is probably something I wouldn't be interested in working with. But when, when I do communicate with a client, it's usually, it, it's not only them interviewing me to potentially work with them, but it's also me interviewing them. In other words, can they handle my style? I'm, hmm. Bottom line is space law side, I'm an attorney. And I think like an attorney and I do litigation work. So I, I think like a litigator and I think an adversarial, in adversarial concepts. So I'm I basically, with, with, even with my non-space law clients, you know, I basically call it like I see it. I tell them, look, this is the reality of the situation, and this is how you got to deal with it. So when, when I'm speaking with a, a potential client at the beginning of things, I basically let them understand, look, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think, because you're going to be paying me a pretty substantial hourly fee to advise you on, on certain matters, and it doesn't do me any good to sugarcoat it uh, I'm just going to tell you what I think. And if you, you know, basically, if you're not really, you know, uh, amicable to that, maybe you should, you know, find somebody else. And that's kind of how, you know, that's kind of the dance at the beginning. It's, it's, a, it's a two-way interview, uh, the client interviewing me and me interviewing the client. And uh, like I said, most of the time, um, there are always starter questions I ask, you know, certain, certain questions I'll, I'll ask them to kind of feel out their, their proposal to see if they've gotten the stardust out of their eyes and, and are really facing reality about, you know, what, what, their, what their project in, entails. So, um, again, I really can't go into too much detail because there's that, non-com- that, there's that confidentiality aspect of my work that I really don't like to talk about uh, what I communicate with my clients and my potential clients for that matter. Right. Well, but personality is, is key. And, and for the business newbie type folks listening, what, what do you mean? Of course you would want somebody to tell it like it is. No, uh, I know from this thing, <laughs> especially on the process engineering side, going in and investigating companies, there are a lot of business owners there who don't want to hear the truth, who want to avoid conflict. They don't want to have to go fire somebody or find out the brutal truth about what's going on and have to confront it. Uh, that is very unpleasant for a lot of people. So what Michael is talking about here is definitely a divisor of separating those folks who can't handle it and those folks who can and do want it. Uh, I'm definitely on the side of, look, I need to know what reality is. Mm-hmm. And if somebody's stealing from me, for example, I need to go and take care of that. Whereas well, some of our clients in the early days didn't want to take care of that. And so and it's, we not only that, it's, it's not yeah. only things like that, but it's also, look, there are certain realities about what, about the area you're going in that you have to deal with. There are legal and regulatory realities you have to deal with. And sometimes people don't want to hear that. It's like, well, right. why can't I just do this? And I say, well, you know, bottom line is there are legal realities. And I'm saying, but the thing I tried, I, I kind of softened that was saying, look, these are not insurmountable. 
you can, you know, don't get, don't yeah. get shocked by the word, I, the term ITAR. Now that's one word that scares the hell out of a lot of people when they see it. Oh my God, ITAR. Oh my God, ITAR. It's going to stop me. Not necessarily. I mean, you can work through it and, uh, you know, get a, possibly get approval through the state department on certain projects. But the whole idea is when you, when you strip off the, when you strip off everything, a project may look, look great on paper, but when you start looking into the details of it, it really, it's a lot of work and uh, mm -hmm. it can get scary. It can get scary. Yep, agreed, agreed. Let's look at something that just happened. Uh, it was, hopefully, I'm going to try and issue two uh, episodes a week now, and we'll see how that goes. So that'll make the gap between when we record and when these come out a little faster. But on April 6th, uh, and it's the 14th now, you, you were posting about the White House's uh, executive order regarding space resources. Uh, and this is a quote from something that you said, that it was a the U.S. posturing for the space resources food fight and a pushback against um, the, the building blocks, which I imagine are these, these uh, from The Hague. So yeah. what do you believe was at issue in, the, in this situation, and what direction are you contemplating as best uh, to proceed in? Well, to be honest, that, that, it surprised the hell out of me to see that, those, that order drop, especially with what's going on right mm -hmm. now. I'm not saying it was a bad thing. It really, it really made my day because I said, oh, my God, this is a really bold policy step. Fundamentally... And, and I mentioned the word food fight, and I've been mentioning this to other people because um, at the UN, there, you know, the idea, the, the whole concept of space resources was going to be, you know, really brought to the forefront and talked about. Now, back in February, the Hague Working Group presented the building blocks to uh, the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, COPUS, uh, and kind of and kind of set the stage. Now, I have a real I mean, I was, a, I was an observer for, for the building blocks. Uh, I got to comment on, on the final draft. So I really have some, looking at it as a critical lawyer, as an adversarial lawyer, as a litigation attorney, I had some real issues with it. But what I saw with this, with this uh, executive order is saying, you know what, instead of, instead of fighting this out in the UN completely, we're going to kind of do an end runaround and go directly with, to other states and, and discuss, you know, this idea of space resources and promote our idea of space resources and, and get them to actually work with us. And that's what I really liked about the, uh, about the EEO is that it kind of couched it, the whole right of space resources as U.S. citizens should have the right, not boom, we have the right, you know, and the heck with what, what you think. The idea is we should have the right. And that kind of opens the door for other states to come in and talk one-on-one -on -one with the U.S. and potentially create standards of behavior, uh, come to agreement about um, how these things are, are, are trickled down economically and such. So, I mean, it's just, it was an immensely bold, uh, uh, bold uh, executive order. And I think it really changes the whole dynamic of the idea of space resources. And I kind of think that has a lot to do with, with Artemis as well, the Artemis program, mm -hmm. uh, you know, bringing partners on along with that too. Hmm. Okay, so uh, so perhaps a little less confrontational than I first read it, because uh, they were saying, "Look, we're not part of the Moon Treaty. <laughs> you know, we're uh, we're doing our own thing here." But you are saying that they are inviting dialogue with this, right? But I think a second that section you're talking about with the Moon Treaty that was a really that was a really important statement. I mean, the U.S. never really had anything to do with the Moon Treaty and always kind of just ignored it and just you know basically, okay, this is an issue. But here they really came out hard and said. No, this is not. We 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 don't recognize Moon Treaty, but they also came out and said we don't recognize it as customary international law, and we will push back on it. Now, 
we could we could talk a whole show about customer international law. I just don't want to get too far into it. But basically, customer international law is international law created through actions instead of treaty. And the whole idea, and the whole idea, and the whole premise is, and my my concern over the past few years has been the fact that the U.S. hasn't been pushing back on the Moon Treaty. Kind of gives it, you know, room to expand and saying, well, you know, people aren't pushing back on it heavy as maybe if more states sign on to it, it'll actually grow and actually become more prominent international law. That's kind of a, that's kind of a nutshell. Okay. But they Um, pushed back on that very hard. I was really. Right. You, 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 uh, and it's, it's good to take a stand. And as we know, presidents, successive presidents tend to base their policy on what the previous ones have said. You know, and a, uh, an Eisenhower to a Kennedy to, uh, you know, a, a Johnson to a Nixon, and suddenly we're in Vietnam, right, all the way. So it says sometimes it can be good, sometimes it can be bad. But um, let's talk a little bit about, you have your own show that you've started doing. Uh, it's kind of a, a podcast, but it's also on YouTube, and that just like this one uh, called Space Thoughts. Tell us a little bit of, about that. Well, that, that was kind of, this is kind of a, something I actually started about the middle of last year mm. and the idea was to get out you know and instead of just writing on a blog mm-hmm. which takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and uh but doesn't you know and, and such i decided you know let's do let's let's try youtube so you got the new camera found out windows 7 wasn't quite cutting it so i had to kind of wait a little bit and at the beginning of the year i finally got into got into the 21st century with a uh with an updated uh, laptop and updated operating system so now i can really you know produce these quite easily uh, the whole idea is just to, you know, get, get put some, you know, look at some hot topics, talk about certain topics in space law or international law, or geopolitics, and just do these quick videos, you know, short videos to get out there and, you know, inform people and educate people about um, the idea of space law. And um, it's, you know, it, it, it's got, has, has a very modest start and like all, all channels do. I'm sure everybody out there has been, you know, the point where they've had a few dozen subscribers to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let it grow. But, you know, I, I try and do one each week. Um, this last one on the, I did the, on the uh, EO that, that dropped was in the middle of the week and that's unusual, but I had to, I felt I had to get it out there to really, you know, let people know, Hey, this is significant instead of it being downplayed as not being significant. Right. Well, I think it's a great idea. I've listened to a couple episodes um, and it's, it's great to get the ideas out of your head and, out into the world um it, you know and and it's so much harder as you say to write <laughs> than it is to just turn on the camera and start talking to yeah, uh, writing writing is video. Uh, people who say they're going oh you know writing's easy and right. well right. <laughs> not, not really i mean you know I, I tell people well sometimes you know for a major for for an article that i write you just takes me about a week to write it mm-hmm. maybe maybe 10 maybe half hour to write down the initial draft and then the rest of the week to mull it over in my brain and, and edit it so it's it's not right. writing is not it's it's a labor and uh it can be quite in the uh it can be quite interesting at times yeah uh, i've had a blog that i've been doing for five years and i've dropped down to one article a month um and well, i've i've read and watched a lot of there's some great university of chicago's got something on uh, academic writing and how difficult it is and how the first draft like yours is just mostly like the, the author thinking through their ideas right and mapping it out and then that's usually where most writers leave it but uh no we have to go back and and realize okay we've got an audience here 
and try and explain it in that. Uh, are there any standout issues of space law from your perspective um, with regard to commercial operations? Well, I think right now space resources definitely bring uh, poles to the front burner. That's um, that that EO that dropped basically got is getting it back to a boil. So that's something that's mm. going to take up a lot of time. But there's but but I think the the whole uh, the one of the bigger things is you know actually developing commercial legislation more and. Um, because right now, right, one, of, one of the issues that I see is very important is right now, the way Congress has written domestic space laws, and understand domestic space laws are designed to fulfill or enact the legal, the, uh, legal authority given in Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, which basically says commercial entities can perform space activities, but they have to be, quote, authorized and supervised. Now, those, that, the, 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 the phrase authorized and supervised has caused so much contention because what the hell does it mean? <laughs> what the heck? What the heck does that mean? And each state that enacts a domestic space law kind of interprets it differently. So here we have right now the way the, it is set up is that Congress developed a regulate laws basically giving the FAA authority to regulate launches and reentries, and that's it. Nothing in between. So in other words, the FAA has the authority to allow a, a mission to launch and allow, and if, if it is the case, for it to re-enter. But it, there is no authority, Congress has given the FAA no authority to regulate what goes on in between. Now they kind of can do that a little bit with what they call a payload review, review the payload, what the, what, what's this thing you're sending up there and what's it gonna do? And from there they're gonna determine whether or not they wanna let it get off the ground. When it's actually up there, it's kind of hard for them to actually say, well, you need to do this, this, and this, mm -hmm. because Congress hasn't given that authority. And there's a big question whether or not Congress should step up and actually give them that authority or give another agency that authority um, so that they have that. Now, that's a huge issue. Um, mm -hmm. The whole thing of continuing supervision is is the boogeyman in, in, in commercial space because, oh, my God, you know, what what kind of supervision does it get? Will the government envision? Are they going to be looking over our shoulders all the time, or are they just going to be checking in every once in a while, or saying, "Hey, just let us know what you're doing and go from there"? So that's a bit, that's one of the big things. That's been a big issue for a long time. I don't see anything resolving right now in it because you know we're, we're in election year, and I don't see any real heavy legislation on that passing. And uh, again, I, I think it's something that's you know going to be a continuing issue. What are we going to do with this idea of you know continuing supervision, and are we going to explore this and develop it further? Right. I mean, the first question that gobsmacks me about that is uh, who pays for this supervision, right? If the government's going to do it, then it's the taxpayer, and well, basically, yeah. Uh, yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, you know, and so, and, but a lot of that, you know, probably come, you know, a lot of the car be offset by filing fees and stuff mm. for licenses and, and such. Um, yeah, who's going to pay for it is obviously a, a consideration, but that would be part of that would be part of the budget of whatever agency yeah. basically ends up doing it, if it even if it even occurs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is this a space force police thing, and, and how intense is this scrutiny? As, as well, I think I, I think the space force yeah. is more mil is yeah. more concerned, directed at national security. National mm -hmm. security is always a huge issue, and really, it's always a huge consideration of whether or not you're going to get that launch license. I mean, how does this affect U.S. national security is, is, is the big question. And national security always gets a, always gets a big, um, always has a big piece of the pie and the big piece of the attention. I mean, the way I look at it right now, there are three sectors of space. There's national security, mm -hmm. there's civil, which is NASA, and there's commercial. 
Those are the three big, those are the three biggies, but national security is usually the most prominent of those. Right. And has certainly received the most money <laughs> for the yeah. longest period of time here. This is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech, and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it. Right? And a lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? And, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side. Folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side... It's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company a space company. And that has gone on for a little while, six months, a year, something like that. And it is time as uh, COVID has made it to double down or get out. Those are pretty much the choices, right? It's time to invest further in a thing we already know, which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now. Uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or, or stop, just kill the project. And so the good news is in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for Cold Star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, all this stuff. So, if this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I am excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced, expert space, people who understand space, right? Look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanigan from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. Looking back at our, our real politique thing here, are there international safeguards to avoid war as nations move into using space resources and occupying locations in space? No. <laughs> no. And the question is, how are you, you know, how are you going to enforce that? I mean, I people talk about space wars all the time and my eyes start rolling a little bit saying, mm -hmm. okay, here we go. Uh, you know, too much Star Trek or too much Star Wars or, or science fiction. We don't know how it's going to be policed. A lot of it will probably be 
you know, can, will be taken care of at the diplomatic level down here on Earth between nations saying, hey, you know, your, your, your people are starting to, you know, encroach into uh, the people under our, our authority. Uh, you know, we'd like them to back off a little bit. Um, it's tough. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't foresee a space. I don't see a, foresee a space force regulating that because that's more, like I said, military national security. There is, you know, I've heard the idea of a space national, uh, space version of a Coast Guard being floated, but I'm not sure, you know, how viable that is in the near future. I look at it this way. What's going to happen is a solution will have to present itself once activities really start to begin in earnest. Because I tell people, you know, you can't, you can't lay the law out there and then expect the industry to follow. You got to let the industry develop and then the law has to play catch up. You just got to give it an environment where it can go, go out there and develop. And once things that once activities start going on, problems are going to arise, concerns are going to arise. And then you can say, okay, this is something we're going to have to pay attention to a little bit more. And I kind of, I, I kind of, you know, make it akin to computers and, and the information age that boomed. I mean, basically when, when, when TCP IP and internet protocols really started taking root in our homes versus, you know, universities or government offices. Um, basically, you know, there was like little regulation for it. And all, of a, and all of a sudden, all these big explosion of telecommunications, what we're being able to do today, uh, you know, legislators around the world saying, you know what, we got we, we to gotta talk about regulating this a little bit. And of course, there, was, there are cyber protocols too. And there are, there are cyber protocols internationally about about this type of thing that were, were developed as well to address it the idea is you don't create the rules ahead of time that forces industry in a certain direction you let industry take the lead and then you you basically you 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 guide it a little bit by by regulating it as you as needed and this is kind of where i disagree with other attorneys too who basically say well we got to have regulation now we got to lay down the regulation now and let them go. But, you know, you're actually saying, okay, this, the regulars are saying, this is your vision of how space activities are going to go. Instead of letting the industry go and say, with their own vision, develop the vision, develop the activities, and then say, okay, we need to talk to you guys a little bit about regulation. That is a difference I've seen between European space lawyers and American space lawyers. Uh, yeah, Europeans really want to nail everything down and write everything down to the last decimal place. But the, the Americans go, look, they, we cannot anticipate uh, all these events or what's actually going to happen. So, Well, it's basically, one, one's basically saying this is the yellow brick road and you will follow it. Instead of saying, go be, you know, go, go create a path on your own. Mm -hmm. And when, when you do, well, we're, we may, you know, tell you that, you know, if this is going to be the path, this is how you're going to have to build your path or, you know, you know, manage your path. Okay. Is there such a thing as deterrence in space then? Or is that a fantasy? What is well, it depends. On what you <laughs> Let's define our terms. <laughs> because here, you know, here in here in the West, we have this con idea of deterrence that basically mm -hmm. says if we present a strong front, we can we can prevent aggression. In other words, um, well, peace through strength, mad mutual mm -hmm. assured destruction during the Cold War. I, our idea was if we create a force of a nuclear force that the other side knows will absolutely de devastate them if they try something. They won't try something. Now, that's that concept has been brought along in the current national security space uh, strategy. The, the we call it the NSSI. It was back in 20, 2011. They had what they called the layered approach to deterrence. That that involves diplomacy and and creation of norms. And when I talk about norms, I talk about standards of behavior. And as a last resort, force if necessary to you know basically create deterrence. 
and I'm really not, I really wasn't a fan of it because we had, I look at our, our, our friends in the East and their idea of deterrence is this, you know what, force is part of deterrence. In other words, we're not, we, we believe, and I believe they call it wish is basically that our idea of deterrence is, you know what, to, to prevent, we're not saying that force isn't off the table for deterrence. In other words, we can use force to make a quick strike and basically discourage an adversary from further escalating it. So in other words, we can, we for, and I'll, I'll use a space example. You know, the, one, of the big, one of the big concerns right now is anti-satellite technology and anti-satellite capabilities. And we know the PRC and the Russian Federation have been developing their, uh, their counter space capabilities quite prolifically. And people say, well, that's for deterrence. And they're thinking in terms of Western deterrence that, you know, will, that will prevent the U.S. from being aggressive in outer space. Well, that is, it is for deterrence. It is for their deterrence. In other words, if something were to, you know, a conflagration was to pop up in the South China Sea over what's going on over there with these territorial claims, if, you know, basically, you know, the, the PRC could say, okay, we're going to, we're going to pop up, we're going to, we're going to use a few ASATs, we're going to, we're going to take out some G GPS birds or, or hobble some reconnaissance satellites and basically make it difficult for the, for the U.S. and Western forces to operate there. And if we do that, we may discourage them from further escalating it and letting things cool down. Hmm. That's their, uh, that, that, is, that is essentially, in a nutshell, the idea of deterrence in the People's Republic of China. So that's kind of the antithesis of deterrence here in the West as, as actually is viewed right now. And it doesn't work. And it basically, it doesn't work because it doesn't address the idea. Sun Tzu said, if you know your enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the outcome of a hundred battles. But he said, if you, know, if you know yourself but not the enemy, you're gonna lose some. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of you know, understanding how shaping our deterrence is a Western deterrence should be based on how an understand based on an understanding of how an adversary views deterrence and they and basically they 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 do it to us and again this all gets back in the real into real politic into national interest and I call them adversaries but it, I think the term geopolitical competitor is a better term for it they want their interest and they're will and what the question is what are they willing to do to further those interests and that's right. basically where deterrence comes in. Right. And it's kind of wishful thinking to think that, uh, yeah, they're not going to have their interests or, or to be shocked that they are, uh, you know, addressing their own interests, which is well, that's it. a and, reaction and, you know, I frequently see. And that's it. You know, I, and I talked to somebody a few, few months ago and we had, and it was a very realistic discussion. And, and, and you know, basically he, he came around and said, they have their interests too, but we have ours. And that's, and really that's the way it is. I think cooperation is a good thing. But you always got to take cooperation in the context that each side is going to have its own interest for doing so. And, and I get back to the lawyer thing. When I'm in a negotiate, when, when I negotiate a contract or, mm -hmm. or, in a, or if I do a mediation for a client, I'm not looking out for the other person. That's not my job. My job is to look out for my client and get that my client the best deal possible. And the same thing goes for treaties. Well, you don't, you don't sign treaties to benefit the other side, you, benefit, you, 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 you get a treat, you get the best deal you can for yourself, which also means making the other side give up as much as you can make them give up. Mm -hmm. That's reality, folks. That, and, and, and that's why I say law is, an ad, is by its nature adversarial. Uh, and, and that goes back to uh, what you, your beginning question on deterrence. Basically, they are, they, they are using, they are developing deterrence they feel will further their national interest and, and get the result they want.
Okay. So good for people to learn about different points of view here. Uh, exactly. I am curious, uh, Michael, who are a few key people that you follow who you believe are authoritative or imaginative in, uh, in space? Well, I, I don't follow people just, you know, for basically to follow them for ideas, but maybe, you know, maybe keep an ear to the ground to see what's mm -hmm. going on. But there are a few people that I really have a lot of respect for. And one is uh, Dr. Mark Sundahl, uh, Uni University of Cleveland. In fact, he just started, uh, I think last year, started a global space law center. And uh, he's actually, he's somebody you might want to communicate mm -hmm. with and, and get on here. Uh, I had the pleasure. Oh, this is a selfish question, Michael. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, but you know, just, um, you know, just, I met Mark three years ago at a symposium at the University of Michigan. We were both speaking. You know, and just really nice guy. Absolutely brilliant. Um, he and I, you know, talked on a few things. And uh, Mark, Mark, under, Mark, Mark understands things. Really good guy and somebody I would definitely recommend for the show. But he's, he's definitely one person that I really don't follow him, but we keep in, we keep in touch. Uh, and actually, Dr. Christopher Newman over at the University of Northumbria. Chris is not only a colleague, but a really good friend. Uh, I actually got to meet him uh, last last October in Washington at, at an event. Uh, he's definitely a very, uh, a very, a really, really good person, and a really he has a really interesting point of view on, on space as well. But most of the way, and like I said, a lot of a lot of things I do when I when I follow people is just to keep my ear to the ground to see what's going on. Uh, somebody accused me one time of, of you know you snooze you lose. I said no. I, I when I sleep I have one eye open. So you know it's like uh, if I see something if I see something that I think is significant I'll jump in and make sure that my point of view is known. All right. Well, I'll definitely check those two folks out. Like uh, I guess let's finish up with uh, let's let's mention the pressy um, what you're doing with that and and also where people can connect with you find out more about you follow your your thoughts. Well. I started the Pressy back in June of 2016. My God, it's been almost four years now. Uh, and this was an idea I'd been mulling around for about for about six months. They you know the idea that you know there wasn't a lot of things out there that was actually bringing a real a real politic. Uh, I guess we'll use that word again. Perspective on outer space, and you know, just bringing about uh, together a bunch of issues. And you know, what's in other words, what's going on that I think is important. And and a basis on, on because a lot of people, when they come to me, they say, well, what do you think? Well, mm -hmm. the idea of the press is, this is what I think is important, and this is what I think about it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I sent you know, it out. I started out with a few subscribers, and I, then I actually had people coming to me and asking me, you know, just totally out of the blue, hey, we've heard about this. You know, can we get, you know, can we subscribe to it? And, uh, yeah, it is a subscription letter. It does, it, it does cost you money, and I try to keep it reasonably priced. Um, but it's a lot of work. Uh, my, I do four, to, four quarterly issues each year. I just put up my first quarter 2020 back at the, I think it was March 27th. And I try to do special in, issues in between that focus on one subject. Like I am, in, I am considering doing a special issue on this EO that dropped uh, last week. So yeah, I do, uh, for an individual membership, it's $199 a year. I get you the four issues plus any special issues. Um, I do have discounts for government employees, academia, and I actually have spe a special rate for students and nonprofits as well. It's, it's all, you can go to my website, spacelawsolutions.com, and it, it has all the information there. There's a link, if you click it, uh, it sends me an email and I'll send you a, a back issue, uh, a free back issue of the quarterly issue for you to look at it and consider it. And uh, if you want to subscribe, I'd welcome a subscriber. Uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, quarterly issues are about 
people ask, well, how long does it take you to put together a quarterly issue? I said, well, usually I'm thinking about the next quarterly issue after I'm done the one that after I drop uh, drop one. So right now, as of March 27th, I've already been thinking about my 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 uh, second quarter at the end of June, and it takes me about a good solid four weeks to really pull it together, and then about a good two weeks to recover afterwards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of coffee is consumed during those issues. Yep. No, as a content creator, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> All right. Well, my guest today has been Space Attorney, uh, Founder and Principal at Space Law and Policy Solutions, Michael Listener. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Jason. This is Jason Canningham from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released, and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio only uh, side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists. And so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats. And I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, <laughs> looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening.